0: Good morning. Trust that you had a good Thanksgiving. Plenty of pie. I'm still waiting for the pecan pie. Somehow that slipped through the the chef's order, but anyway, Christmas is coming. And I'm sure it'll it'll be on the menu. You know, time flies. I've I've I guess I just realized it. Uh, recently that This is now this week Is now the third year That I have had the privilege of teaching This class every week The third year <laughs> Oh man So well thank you But uh, boy hard to believe It's been that long And Rex I think you've been sitting in that chair The whole time haven't you <laughs> You can get up now Well, what do you do when your computer crashes or you lose a file or something that goes wrong? I'm not sure what you PC users do. You probably call some geek in a a van to come fix you. But uh, we Macintosh people have a fairly simple solution if you know how to do it, Uh, which I guess makes it simple if you know how to do it. But we have a, a little gizmo on the Macintosh called the Time Machine. And if you have a... Macintosh, and you're not familiar with Time Machine, talk to me after class and let's get you set up because you you need it if your computer crashes. Or, like my father, my stepdad recently had lost his contacts, all the contacts. Imagine all the contacts in your phone and your computer, everything gone. Remember the days when we actually had phone books that we would carry around (laughs) or we had phone books that we would, you know, that were eight inches thick that they would deliver to us well now we just have everything in a little so anyway he lost all his contacts and he has a mac so he was in good shape and he used the time machine so we sat down together and i said tell me the date where you know you had your contacts and he said some date and i said okay so we got into the time machine and it's kind of a cool experience once if you've ever done it you press the little button and all of a sudden these windows just start filing in front of you like and you just choose the date. And you just select the date and all of a sudden your computer is back to that date. Now, you don't want everything back to that date because, you know, you've lost a lot that you've done but recently. But you can go back and you can select the particular file from that date that you want to restore. A click and he's got all his contacts back. So it's kind of a handy feature. After we did that, I thought, you know, it would be awesome if we could do that with our sins. I don't mean go get them back. That would not solve any problem, would it? No, I mean, like, right after you say that stupid thing to your wife, you wish, ooh, Let's go back to yesterday when everything was good, and let's restore that. Or after you, you said something to your boss or to a family member, or you know you made that shady financial decision, or you, you were sort of made this in-the-gray uh, choice that you really regretted. At the time, you thought well, it's not a big deal, or maybe at the time you knew it was flat-out wrong. Wouldn't it be great to be able to go back and to restore that and to just sort of start over, to enter the time machine of our lives, as it were, and to choose a date and go back. Well, here's the problem. We'd be in this continual loop. We would never, ever make make any progress because even if we could go back and learn from that mistake, we'd still just be who we are moving forward and we would make others. We would be in this continual loop without any progress ever made. Well, God offers a much better solution. It's called forgiveness. It's called grace. And it's called his sovereign plan that works his highest good even through the bad that we do. The book of Joel in the Old Testament, I invite you to turn there with me to this minor prophet. The book of Joel gives us a great illustration of this timeless truth. It was true in the time of Israel. It's true in our lives as well that our God is able to restore what sin has taken. We don't have to enter a time machine, but our Lord Jesus did it by entering time and by giving of himself. Minor Prophets. Once again, we're going through a single lesson or a single message from each of the 66 books of the Bible. Last week was Hosea this week is Joel. Next week, we're going to kind of jump over a few and do Micah. Since we're sort of in the Christmas season, we're going to do Micah as a, as the minor prophet for next week. And then we'll get back into the flow next year, I think. So next week is our last time, right, before for the whole year. we got one more. Two more. What? This is December 1st. And then we got the 8th. And then we got the 15th. Okay, so we got two more. Anyway, well, Mike is coming up either next week or the week after that. Here's your memory button. Somebody help Rex to the door. He's he's wanting to leave. So, Joel. Joel, what a great name. Joel means it's got those two parts. The J O is sort of our anglicized version of Yah. Yahweh, and El means God. So Joel's name means Yahweh is God. What a great name, a great name for a a child. Um, Joel wrote his book. We're not terribly sure. Uh, Even good conservative scholars aren't sure if he wrote it right before the exile or after the exile. So the timing isn't terribly clear, but the message is crystal clear. Joel speaks of a time called the Day of the Lord, the Day of the Lord. And when you read through the Scriptures, and particularly the book of Joel, and you see the Day of the Lord, the Day of the Lord throughout the Scriptures is referring to God showing up and bringing justice and bringing often judgment. Sometimes it's on foreign people. Sometimes it's on God's people. Sometimes it includes blessing. But it's justice when God shows up in the day of the Lord. And Joel shows us a day of the Lord. You might say uh, day with a little D and day with a big D. So we're talking about the day of the Lord kind of just throughout history. It's just these moments where God would show up and bring justice. But then there's also the day of the Lord, the big D day of the Lord. That's the end in which God's prophetic eschatological clock begins ticking again. And the day of the Lord includes that, that seven-year period of tribulation coming on Israel and, and on the whole world. It includes the, the kingdom of God, the millennial kingdom of God in which Jesus Christ reigns from Jerusalem on this very earth. Uh, it, so it's not just God's judgment, but it's also a time of judgment and then blessing upon Israel. Joel talks about all of that. And there's great lessons here for us And We're not going to get through the whole book, obviously. We're just going to start actually in chapter 2. So, Joel chapter 2. The first chapter, which we've skipped, is probably what Joel is most well-known for, and that's a locust invasion. If you've read through the book of Joel, you're probably most familiar with the locusts, all the different locusts. In fact, I remember when we were, when I was studying Hebrew, at seminary we had to translate Joel and each one of these locusts like in in chapter 1 verse 4 the gnawing locust the swarming locust the swarming the creeping locust the stripping locust I mean each one of these locusts is a different Hebrew word it's like why not just call it a locust you got four words to learn anyway so but that's over thankfully but there are lots of locusts that blow through in in the book of Joel, and it was God's judgment on the land, and God's judgment on his people. Because they didn't repent and follow him, he, sent, he allowed the locusts to come in and absolutely strip the land bare as a motivation for them to turn back to him. Well, when we get to chapter 2, Joel uses that same imagery and refers to an army, not an army of locusts, but a different invasion. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Blow a trumpet in Zion and an alarm, and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. As the dawn is spread over the mountains, so there is a great and mighty people. There has never been anything like it, nor will there be again after it. To the years of many generations, a fire consumes before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but a desolate wilderness behind them, and nothing at all escapes them. Sounds like a locust invasion, doesn't it? Well, it it does, because we should be familiar with chapter 1, but this imagery of, of like people coming like the day dawning over the mountains, it's like this dark land, and then as the day comes, there's not a piece of the land that's not touched by the sun. And in the similar illustration of, of um, like the Garden of Eden in front of them, in front of this army, it's lush and green, behind the army, it's like a wilderness. When they're done with it, it's like locusts that have come in and have totally ravaged the land. Well, this is not speaking of locusts, most likely. It's speaking of the mighty people that God has arranged to come and judge God's people. Joel says to blow a trumpet there in verse 1. A uh, trumpet would be blown to give warning of attack. Basically, God is saying, uh, Joel is, is saying, hey, I'm a herald, I've got a trumpet, and I'm warning you, this is what's coming. There are, there's an army that's coming in. And Joel is like a watchman on the walls that says, you need to change, or this is what's going to happen. Um, my first experience with a bunch of insects occurred in college. Now, I mean, I've obviously known insects all my life, but, but I've never experienced a herd of locusts before. Can you say herd of locusts? Swarm of locusts. But crickets are something here in North Texas that we deal with. Have you noticed that it's like in the fall every year, all of a sudden there's just this, all these crickets everywhere. It is amazing. Well, my first experience with this is when I was in college. I was up at North Texas State University, walking across the campus of my normal route, and I noticed the library looked different. I looked at the library wall. There, there was a wall. It was just this huge, you know, four stories of just solid brick wall and it was brown and I thought well that's really strange so I got closer and I noticed it was hairy and I got even closer and I noticed it was moving and when I got up right up to it it was crickets all over this wall it was gross in fact that's just what I said I said that's gross Well, that wasn't anything compared to what happened in the days that followed after the campus sprayed for crickets. You can't imagine the stench of billions of dead crickets. Well, this, in a sense, is what happened in the book of Joel, not the the dead locusts everywhere, but the invasion of these insects. In fact, back in 1865 in Israel, uh, it was called the Year of the Locust because the invasion was so bad. They had another locust invasion. But the invasion in 1915 in Israel, or back then it was called Palestine, was uh, so terrible, National Geographic covered the story. And if you want to, you could probably Google it or, or find old, an old uh, uh, photographs from National Geographic. But 1915 Locust Invasion of Israel – the article describes the locusts stripping the bark off forests to where the, complete, the trees were completely white. It was just, just the, the, the bare tree left. That was the situation. And that was the situation that they faced in Jerusalem during Joel's day. Total, complete calamity. Why was God bringing calamity on his people? Because they had not repented. In fact, he was warning them, so that this wouldn't have to happen. Look down at verse 11, and let's continue. The Lord utters his voice before his army. Surely his camp is very great, for strong is he who carries out his word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome, and who can endure it? Yet, even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, and with fasting, weeping, And mourning and rend your heart and not your garments. Let's pause just there for a second. As bad as it's gotten, God says, even though it is so bad that I am about to unleash this army on you that will bring total devastation on Jerusalem, yet even now, even though it's as bad as it possibly could be, even now, If you'll repent, I'll relent. Even now, return to me with all your heart. And notice that he says, Rend your heart, not your garments. That when you show signs of repentance, you know, for them it was fasting, it was weeping, it was mourning, but you would also tear your clothes. You've probably seen this in movies, like, you know, when Jesus of Nazareth or something is standing in front of Caiaphas and Caiaphas tears his clothes. Well, it's a a Jewish tradition that when you hear blasphemy or when you are in mourning, that you would rip or rend your clothes. And God is saying, don't just rend the outside. If you want to show true repentance, rend your heart. Don't just be externally repentant. But let the heart mean it. Rend your heart and not your garments. Um, We might say it in a similar way today. Baptize your heart and not your body. It's the idea of, of true, true repentance and true turning to God. Here's a timeless truth that we can grab from this text that's as true today as it was back then. And that is this, more important to God than right actions is a right heart. More important to God than right actions is a right heart. Because we can do the right things for the wrong reasons. We can pray, we can give money, we can serve in church, we can help old ladies across the street. But if your motive is to get your picture in the paper, or to be looked at as holy, or to try to impress a family member, or whatever. We can be doing the, the right things for the wrong reasons. This is why the Lord says, don't just go through the motions for repentance. If you want to come back to me, bring your heart. Let your heart lead the way. When you think of repentance, what comes to mind? Actually, I had a conversation with a friend about this recently. And it's such a common, common misunderstanding because a lot of us grew up in a, in a church or a culture that perhaps where repentance meant change your life. <coughs> repent, what does that mean? Change the way you're acting. But that's getting the cart before the horse. If we were to turn to the New Testament and look at the word repent, the word repent in the New Testament is from a word that means the change of mind. A cha- really, it means a change of mindset. It's a change of direction. It's a change of devotion from this way to this way. To repent is to have a 180 in your devotion and in your passion. And that changes your life. But we don't get the cart before the horse and say repentance is simply changing your actions. Repentance in the the grand scheme of the scriptures, is the exact same idea as believe. I wish we had the time to turn to it, um, but I think we may look there a little later. But repent simply means a change of mind that causes a change of life. Um, My recent shoulder surgery, uh, I left the the doctors with they, they stuck something in my neck so that I wouldn't feel the pain of them cutting into my arm. And when I woke up I had a sling and an arm that I could not move. It was, you know, they, it was still numb from all the, the stuff that they'd put in me. And it was pretty weird. Have you ever had a limb that just like was non responsive? In a way it's kind of scary. Because here it is, it's clearly yours, it's warm, which is weird, and you're touching it and moving it, but it's not, it won't respond. I remember trying with all my heart to try to just move a finger, and I couldn't do it. It was weird. It's one thing to have a limb that's non-responsive, that you can tell it's there, but you can't feel it. But it's another thing altogether to have lost a limb or have a limb amputated but it still feels like it's there. This is a um, a phenomenon called the phantom limb. Have you heard of the phantom limb? It's what I just described. An amputee still feels the sense that the limb is there. You've got toes that aren't there, but they feel like they're curling. A hand that isn't there that feels like it's grabbing something. A leg, you think, well, I could stand on that, but there's no leg. Some even experience pain with this, and for them, it's called the phantom pain. Your arm hurts, but there's no arm. It's such a strange phenomenon. Well, there was a man named Mr. Barwick who had a very painful circulation problem in his leg, but he didn't want to get it amputated. The doctor said, look, this is the only solution. There's nothing we can do to save your leg. And he said, well, I don't want to to amputate it. Well, finally... It got, his pain got so bad that he said, doctor, go ahead and take it off. But, and here's weird, and I, and I, I hope this, I heard the story is true. It's a little odd, so it may be apocryphal. But anyway, Mr. Barwick said, I, I want you to save my leg. Stick it in, a, in one of those pickling jars, a, a big, pretty big pickling jar. But save it because I'm going to put it on my mantle this is obviously a single man. I'm going to put it on my mantle, and as I sit in my easy chair, I'm going to yell at my leg, It can no longer hurt me. Well, the poor guy had phantom pain. And so the leg literally got the last laugh, in a sense. But I thought about Mr. Barwick's request in relation to our spiritual life. Seems a bit of an odd story to share until you think about the fact that we're that way with past decisions or past mistakes that we've made in that we will feel the pain of something and finally we'll think, you know what, I need to get rid of that. But we still live with the identical pain as if it's still attached The thought there also can be for those of us who have placed our faith in Christ that maybe if we've done something so terrible in our past that we will, we know that it's gone. Christ has taken it away and it's on the cross, but for some reason we just won't give up that memory. We cling to our past sins, not in any sense of longing or desire, but we just struggle letting go of it, and it's as if it's still attached as if, as if it's hurting us when it really has no right to hurt us. Why should Israel have a change of mind here in Joel chapter 2? Well, look at what Joel says. We ended, or we stopped there, about first line of verse 13. Let's continue with verse 13. The Lord says, "'Rend your heart and not your garments. "'Now return to the Lord your God, "'for he is gracious and compassionate, "'slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, "'and relenting of evil. "'Who knows whether he will not return? "'He will not turn and relent "'and leave a blessing behind him, "'even a grain offering and a drink offering "'for the Lord your God.'" Why should we return to the Lord? Because God is gracious. God is compassionate. God is inviting us to return so that when we do, He can relent. God says in, e- in Ezekiel, He says, Why would you die, O house of Israel? Why don't you return so that I can heal you? It doesn't have to be this way if you'll simply come back to me. In fact, He says, it will be such a blessing that you will even be able to give a grain offering, which means you have grain, and a libation, which means you have vines, you have wine to drink. It's such a rich blessing that you will even be able to give back to God. The Lord continues to describe this blessing that will come down in verse 23. So rejoice, O sons of Zion, and be glad in the Lord your God, for He has given you the early rain for your vindication and he has poured poured down for you the rain the early and the latter rain as before the threshing floors will be full of grain and the vats will overflow with the new wine and oil then i will make up to you for the years that the swarming locust has eaten the creeping locust the stripping locust and the gnawing locust my great army which i sent among you Amazing how God is involved in the whole process. God sends those locusts into our lives. They have their way with us. We come to our senses and come back to God. And then the Lord says, I can make up for you for the years that the locust has eaten. Think about the locusts of your life for just a moment. Because we've all got them. And frankly, we swatted those locusts a lot. Sometimes they come in swarms, like in years past where we haven't walked with God. Sometimes they come just one at a time to remind us to walk with God in our daily lives. But those locusts eat stuff when they're with us. The sins that we commit, the compromises that we make, have the result of our lives sometimes being devastated. And we look back at the trail of our life behind us and we can see that so much of the wilderness is of our own doing. God in his grace says, if you'll just come back to me, I can make up for you the years that the locust has eaten. It's wonderful. It's not just grace for forgiveness, but it's grace that gives beyond. Think about Job. Remember Job's story where he lost all that he lost, and yet when God was done with that that devastation that he allowed in Job's life, he blessed Job even more than he had before. Phillips Brooks, the great Puritan, said this, You must learn, you must let God teach you, that the only way to get rid of your past is to make a future out of it. God will waste nothing. Here's a second principle from the text, and that is that God can restore what sin has taken when we give him our whole heart. When we give him our whole heart, God can restore what sin has taken. Whether it's a relationship in the past, whether it's a death, whether it's a financial loss, now, that doesn't mean that God can make us rich or that God can, re- can replace their relationship. You can't replace someone who's died. You can't replace necessarily a, a financial um, riches. That's not necessarily what the Lord is saying, but there can be a restoration that goes so far beyond whether it's perspective, whether it's appreciation, whether it's praise to God. There can be something in your life that is so rich when we give our hearts to God that goes far beyond material. And in the grand scheme of things, we realize that a person who has died in the Lord has not really died. They're just sleeping in the sense that one day they will be raised again for a fellowship that is just as real as the fellowship that we enjoy today. In fact, it'll even be, in in one sense, even more real because we won't have our sin to mar our motives And to get between us, it can be a a wonderful restoration. Well, keep your finger here in Joel 2 and turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Peter, on the day of Pentecost, quotes from Joel. And if you ever wonder where Peter's quoting from, Acts chapter 2, he's quoting Joel 2. Acts 2, Joel 2. On Pentecost is the great promise fulfilled that the Spirit of God will dwell among His people. It's a promise given in the Old Testament in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. It's a promise that God will give His Spirit in a new covenant, not like the covenant that He made with Moses that was temporary, that was, that was uh, you do your part and I'll do mine. It's an unconditional covenant that God made with Israel that the church is grafted into. And in Acts chapter 2, Peter begins to quote from Joel chapter 2. Look at Acts 2 verse 14. Acts 2:14. Peter, taking his stand with the 11, raised his voice and declared to them, "Men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words, for these men are not drunk as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day." But this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And then he quotes from Joel too. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth my spirit on all mankind. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit. And they shall prophesy and I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Peter quotes from Joel chapter two, and he's quoting, what is he quoting? Verses 28 through 32 of Joel 2. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered, or will be saved. The Apostle Paul also quotes this in Romans chapter 10. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Interesting, a little sidebar here, but one time my uh, daughter and I talked to some Jehovah's Witnesses as they knocked on the door of our home. And they uh, commenced to telling us that Jesus was not God. And uh, we said, oh, really? So we turned to Romans 10, where where it talks about, you know, what, what do you have to do to be saved? And they said, well, you know, if you confess in your mouth that Jesus is Lord, it's right there in the Bible. They said, well, yeah, but that didn't mean he's God. So we looked a little further in that same chapter, and Paul quotes Joel, where Joel says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, quoting Joel, so we turn back to Joel. Looking at Joel, who is Joel talking about there? Well, it's clearly the Lord. So the context is clearly that Jesus is God in Romans 10. So anyway, that was a fun conversation. (laughs) And pretty short. But anyway, and Peter quotes from the book of Joel and says that the fulfillment of the promise of the Holy Spirit there in Joel 2 is there on the day of Pentecost where God promises that if you will return, it's not just a, a good news of me restoring uh, grain and wine, but I will send my Holy Spirit among you. And Peter says this is exactly what happened on the day of Pentecost. Obviously, Acts chapter 2 has a context that's much larger than we can discuss, but look at verse 37 of Acts chapter 2. Acts 2.37, Peter finishes his Pentecost sermon where he talks not only about Jesus being the Messiah, about Jesus' death and resurrection, but now look at verse 37 at the conclusion. Now, when they had heard this, they were pierced to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes this verse has been misunderstood to imply that you need to be baptized in order to have your sins forgiven. I mean, it seems to say that, doesn't it? Repent, let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And part of our problem is that we read English, and in English we don't have uh, singular or plural you. You can mean singular or plural, unless you're from up north and, it, and it's you guys, or you're from down south and it's y'all. So if we had had sort of a, a southern translation, it might have helped a little bit. But understand verse 38 in the the sense of the singular and plural, and it begins to make a lot more sense all of a sudden. Peter said to them, plural, repent, and that word repent has an implied "you," which is plural. And if we looked at the Greek there, it would would show that it's plural. It's a plural command. So everybody, y'all, repent. But then he begins sort of a parenthesis because he says, "...each of you," singular, "...be baptized," singular, "...in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your," plural, "...sins." In other words, Peter, by his by his singular and plural use of you, is creating a parenthesis that we can't read in English and that our translators haven't given for us here, and so it, it is a bit confusing. But if you omit just for a moment the parenthesis to get the sense of what it means, it says, Peter said to them, Repent for the forgiveness of your sins. That's the essence of it. So let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ is simply the the verification that each of you have done that. It's not what you have to do for the forgiveness of your sins, but it's what shows that you have uh, repented. Repent for the forgiveness of your sins. And notice, nowhere in here does it say to believe in Jesus. You notice? I thought you only get your sins forgiven when you believe in Jesus. That's because repentance, the change of mind, is a synonym for belief. And here's another sort of squirrely thing sometimes that we include in our sharing of the gospel, that repentance is a separate step from belief, and it isn't. Repentance and belief are the same thing, biblically. They're the same thing. It's not a separate step. But uh, sometimes you'll see throughout the scriptures, you know, repent and believe, or just believe, or just repent. But the idea is all the same. It's a change of mind from self to God. That's repentance. It's a change of mind from, from self to God. That's belief. Repent for the forgiveness of your sins. And, notice he says, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So, in a sense, it's like what Joel is saying, rend your heart and not your garments. It's not just the baptism. In fact, it's Peter himself who would later say, in fact, let's uh, take a moment and let's look at it. And baptism is such an interesting aspect. L- look at Second Peter for just a second. Book of Second Peter. Where Peter talks about, I believe it's chapter 2. I hadn't planned to share this, which is probably obvious. But because Peter mentioned it, it's worth saying. Okay, so help me. Where is it? Where is that section where it says that the baptism, Peter talks about baptism, Well, maybe we'll need to skip it. I'm looking for that section where Peter says, this baptism now saves you. First Peter? Okay, can you narrow it from there? See, this is a group Bible study. Good, 321. 1 Peter 3.21. Thank you. Thank you for this group effort here. So, 1 Peter 3.21, Peter says, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. So here we've got the exact same preacher that preached on Pentecost about be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says baptism now saves you, not the removal of the dirt from the flesh. We're not talking about water baptism. But, he says, an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, again, it, the baptism is simply an outward expression of something that's going on inside. And there is actually a baptism of the, of the Spirit of God that occurs uh, for our, our spiritual lives. All right, now, back to Joel, our little foyer into the New Testament. is over for now. Back to Joel, look at chapter 3. So Joel chapter 2 looked ahead to the fulfillment of the Spirit of God coming upon God's people. And then chapter 3 takes us even farther than that. Joel 3, For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, then I will enter into judgment with them there, on behalf of my people and my inheritance, Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations, and they have divided up my land. You know, when you're traveling in, like uh, the the mountains in Colorado or some some drive where you're going up and down on the on the mountains, and you can occasionally see. Far in the distance, and you just see mountain peak after mountain peak, and then you go down, and you come up again, and you see mountain peak after mountain peak. But when you're in the valley, you don't see nothing but the valley. But when you're on the mountain peaks, you don't see the valleys. You just see the tops of the peaks. Prophecy in the Old Testament is a lot like driving through the mountains. In the sense that when you get to the peaks, you can see a lot of times the prophets will talk about this peak, that peak, this peak, that peak, and all you see are the peaks, But they don't describe the valleys and sometimes the the distances between the peaks. And when you line the peaks up just right, they can look like they're really close. But the reality is they can be far, far away. This is what Joel is describing when he gets into chapter 3 because he's just come off of, obviously, chapter 2. They're the end of chapter 2, which is fulfilled at Pentecost. We know that was fulfilled right after Jesus' ascension, just weeks after his ascension. And here we are, some 2,000 years later, and we're still waiting for Joel chapter 3, which is the kingdom of God coming, ultimately, when Jesus Christ comes again. And it says that, In those days, I will gather the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. The valley of Jehoshaphat is more than likely the Kidron Valley, And if you've ever been to Israel and have stood on the Mount of Olives looking to the west at Jerusalem, the Kidron Valley is right there below you, and you can picture this very easily because uh, we're told in the book of Zechariah that when the Messiah comes that His feet will touch down on the Mount of Olives. When Jesus comes, when he presented himself to Israel the first time, it was on the Mount of Olives, on the back of a donkey. When he ascended, he left from the Mount of Olives. Zechariah says when he comes again, he's going to land on the Mount of Olives. And we're also told here in Joel that when he comes, he will bring and gather all the nations in that valley, right there below the Mount of Olives, in the valley of Jehoshaphat, and he will judge the nations. In fact, we're told this valley is called not just the Valley of Jehoshaphat, which basically means God judges or Yahweh judges, but also, if you look down at verse 14, it says, multitudes, multitudes in the Valley of Decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the Valley of Decision. So this is a valley in which God sits to judge, not for people to make a decision, but for God to reveal the decision that he's made in the judgment. And if we were to read this whole chapter of Joel chapter 3, you would see the incredible blessing that's coming upon God's people at the end times, when Jesus comes back at the second coming. You know, it's fascinating to stand there on the Mount of Olives, and if you've not been there, you've certainly seen pictures of the Temple Mount, probably from the Mount of Olives, which is the most picturesque way to see it. So if you've seen a picture of the Temple Mount and with the Golden Dome of the Rock and all that, you were standing on the vantage point, more than likely, of the Mount of Olives looking down. And to to stand there and to see it, you're standing in the midst of the largest Jewish graveyard in the world. I mean, there are a lot of tombs on the Mount of Olives, and the the Jewish graveyard, it is such a, a privilege and very expensive to be buried there on the Mount of Olives. And it's sort of ironic because on the Mount of Olives is a Jewish graveyard, and then there's Kidron Valley, and then as the slope starts to go up to the Temple Mount, you've got a Muslim graveyard on that side. And the reason that these graveyards are there is because of the prophecy that talks about the Messiah coming on the Mount of Olives. And there's this expectation sort of, for the Jews anyway, first come, first serve. You know, your, your best, your, your resurrection there on the Mount of Olives, and what do you know? Here's the Messiah, and here we are first in line, standing, standing right here. And But the, obviously, the Muslims don't have that view, they have that view on the other side to desecrate the Messiah as he tries to walk into the temple. He'd have to walk through a graveyard, and of course, that would, that would desecrate him. So, but it's sort of sad in the sense that we know that Jesus came to his own, he came to the Jews, but the Jews did not receive him. Many did. And there will always be a remnant of God's people that, that believe in him and that follow Christ. But many did not. And as a result, uh, Jesus has to come again a second time to, to reign on the earth. Well, Joel teaches us a couple of important principles. We've mentioned them, but let me reiterate them once again. The more important to God than right actions is a right heart. More important to God than right actions is a right heart. And God can restore what sin has taken when we give him our whole heart. I don't know if you remember a television commercial years ago. It was a Nike commercial. And it, no words, it was just music and pictures. And the pictures were these videos of this, uh, this cowboy, you know, with his gnarled eye. In fact, his, something looked like something was really wrong with his eye. And there was another image of this guy with this sort of bulb-shaped cauliflower ear. I mean, it wasn't pretty to look at. And here it is on this commercial, these black and white photos. These people are just smiling, looking at the camera. There was another person that clearly had uh, something wrong with their feet, very calloused feet. And again, no words, just these people with obvious problems, and then you hear Joe Cocker singing, "You are so beautiful to me." Do you remember that commercial? Well, you can probably Google it and find it. You can do that with almost anything today. But the the point was, and then of course it had Nike's, you know, just do it. But for the, it was a cowboy, who was, uh, who was viewed in the sight of other cowboys or bull riders. As boy, we appreciate you because you've got you've obviously very committed to your sport. The the cauliflower ear guy was a a wrestler, and then the um, I think the the calloused feet was a probably a ballerina or something. I don't know how they do what they do, but to the fans, these athletes were beautiful because of their scars. That's really the whole point of the commercial: that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. I saw that commercial and thought, you know what, that's like it is with us and Jesus. Because he sees us in spite of all of our injuries, in spite of all that the locusts have taken from our lives. We are injured, we are scarred, we're blind, and in many sense we are helpless and frankly unattractive to anybody but to Christ. And because of what he's done in our lives, it's almost You don't want to compare Jesus and Joe Cocker, but Jesus says, you're beautiful to me. In spite of all that you really are, you're beautiful to me because I died for you and I have given you my righteousness. God can restore what sin's taken when we give him our whole heart. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the the journey through these minor prophets that have such a major message in our lives, a message of grace. That so while you don't allow your standard for one moment to be altered, you also bring a a means of grace into the picture that allows us to meet that standard by grace through faith in Jesus. Thank you for Joel's pen that he scribbled down what you inspired him to write and gave us a view from the top of the mountains that not only looked at the, the locust plague at that time of history, but also looked forward to the time of the Spirit of God coming on the church, on God's people, and then also looked to a peak yet in the distance of the kingdom of God in which each of us who have placed our faith in Jesus will be able to reign with Christ on this earth for 1,000 years, without the, the bonds and the hindrances of our flesh, of our sinful nature, but instead in resurrected bodies like his resurrected body, we will be able to live forever with the Lord. Father, we thank you that when you look at us in spite of all of our mistakes, in spite of all that the locust has taken, in spite of all the scars and the crippledness of our lives, that we're beautiful to you, not because of us, but because of our Savior. And Lord, we pray for any who might be here today with a doubt in their mind as to where they would spend eternity, the doubt stemming from a life that they wonder if it's just not good enough. Would you open their heart to the truth of your grace and that Jesus died to pay for all their sins and that by faith by repentance, by simply belief in Jesus, that their sins once and for all are wiped away and they are beautiful because of Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen.